Uh, This morning we'll be in chapter 8 of the Confession, which is the subject of Christ the Mediator. And this is a perfect follow-up to our last class on the covenants, uh, specifically the covenant of grace, because in today's chapter we'll be discussing how Christ is the perfectly qualified person to live out the terms of the covenant of works, making the covenant of grace possible, making our salvation possible. And with that, uh, he was the only qualified mediator between God and man. And now you'll notice, if you look at your handouts, that uh, this chapter contains ten paragraphs. Today I'll only be covering uh, paragraphs one through four, uh, as it focuses on Christ's qualifications for the office of mediator. Uh, Next week, Pastor Ron will cover the last six, which focuses more on the execution of this office, how this office is executed, um, Christ as a mediator. With that said, let's go ahead and jump right into paragraph one, if I can get a volunteer to read it. Paragraph one. Thanks. God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them, to be the mediator between God and humanity. God chose him to be prophet, priest, and king, and to be head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world. From all eternity, God gave to the Son a people to be his offspring. In time, these people would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified by him. Thanks, Jeremy. So the confession here begins with a statement that I'm convinced not too many people have heard of. Uh, It says, God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son. Now, I'm sure that you've confronted the idea that God has chosen Israel. You see that in the Old Testament. I'm sure you've heard of the idea that God has chosen Jacob and not Esau. You see that in Romans 9. I'm sure you've uh, confronted the doctrine of election and the truth that God has chosen many before the foundations of the world. But for some of you, it might be the first time hearing about God the Father choosing the Son in any way. Yet this is a type of language that you, you see in Scripture. God the Father chose and ordained the Lord Jesus Christ to be this mediator. And we see from the first sentence in in the paragraph that this is so because it pleased him. You see that, uh, those words there. We also read that he did so according to the eternal purpose. There was an eternal reason for doing so. Again, uh, the father choosing the son uh, for this work. And we see in scripture the language of choosing and ordaining the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll show you here in the projection. First uh, Peter 1.20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. You see that, uh, that foreknown uh, language there, uh, which uh, always refers to a choosing or an ordaining or um, uh, a choosing before for the foundations of the world. And again, we see that God the Father chooses the Son Also, you see that in Isaiah 42, verse 1, where it says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to all nations. We see this passage point to the messianic promise of one who is chosen, who would bring forth justice. That's what we see in this passage. Now, here's the question. What? purpose does it serve the father to choose the son? Why is there choosing at all? Was that even necessary, being that the eternal Godhead, the Trinity, is one, right? Is one in essence, and therefore only has one will. So does this mean that the one person of the Trinity is submissive or subordinate to another person of the Trinity? Why is there one choosing the other? Is there subordination? Is there submission within the Godhead? Quite the contrary. It shows that the Lord Jesus was not eternally subordinate. Uh, Jesus, in his essence, him as deity, as God, did not submit, necessarily. He was one with the Father. But 
the term chosen or the understanding of Christ being chosen has a, has a different uh, way of looking at it. Uh, he was chosen by the Father as one who would be chosen, for example, for ordination, right? Someone selected uh, for ordination in an office. Uh, so this doesn't speak of foreordination, but rather ordination. To ordain someone to an office is to give them authority to exercise or execute a specific task. So when we read that Jesus was chosen and ordained, it simply means that the Father exercised his distinct role in the plan of redemption. To be the one out of the three persons of the Godhead to select and to ordain. And you see this characteristic that is uh, always attributed to the Father. The Father is always the one that's ordaining, selecting, choosing. Uh, and, and then the Son is always the one that's executing um, what the Father has ordained. So um, here's, here's a way to look at it. The Father uh, willed right? He ordained, he planned creation, right? So uh, you, again, you see this pattern in, in creation. The Father wills creation to happen. The Son is the very word in which the will of the Father is manifested, and the Spirit makes the command of the word effectual. You see the triune formula, even in creation. And again, all persons were present since the beginning, and therefore all participated in creation. And yet, each person of the Trinity has distinct roles in the work of creation. And we may say the same thing in new creation when it comes to salvation. We see the Father choose some, the Son accomplishing the work for the chosen, and the Spirit making the work of the Son effectual to the elect. Now, specifically, regarding the choosing of Christ, we see that the Father chooses the Son to be the mediator between God and humanity. And Jesus himself often explained this concept that the Father has chosen and ordained him uh, to this office uh, as mediator in Scripture. We see that. Uh, here's an example here John 5 36b. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, see the task there, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So there's distinction there. Someone sent him, he was sent, right? You also see that kind of language in John 6.44, uh, John 8.18, John 12.49. You don't have to write this down, but believe me, it's, it's all over the place. <laughs> now, moving on, we, we still see in the first sentence there in paragraph one that this chosen and ordained one is the Father's only begotten Son, that's who he is, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son. Now, I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks ago, towards the beginning of the series, we discussed in chapter 2 uh, the, the subject of the Holy Trinity. And if you missed it, you can go back to the audio if you go to the website. Uh, but in paragraph 3, uh, it spoke of the fact that the Father is not, the Father is not derived from anyone Neither is the Father begotten, yet the Son is eternally begotten from the Father. What does that mean? Well, that concept is reiterated here in paragraph 1, that the Son is the only begotten Son. Uh, again, it reflects what the Scriptures teaches and also the creeds, right? the ecumenical creeds, which speak of the doctrine of the eternal generation the begottenness of the Son. A simple way to summarize what it means to be begotten is to say that the Father, first and foremost, is not derivative. He derives from no source. However, the Son, even though he's equal to the Father, is begotten, which means he derives from the Father. This is what makes the Son not the Father and the Father not the Son. Have you ever wondered? Like, if they're all equal and they existed before time. What are, what are the distinctions between the Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, Scripture teaches that the Son is begotten. And so, uh, though he's equal to the Son, he's begotten, which means he derives from the Father. Uh, now, it's important to understand that there was never a time in which the Son derived for the first time. 
the Father did not create Jesus at some point in history. He always was. Jesus always was. Which means that if he's he's begotten, he's eternally begotten or eternally generated. Uh, Anyway, for more like in-depth discussion on those like inter-Trinitarian distinctions between the persons, you can, um, you can go back to the website and you can hear the teaching on, on the Trinity. But moving along, still in the first sentence, the confession states something that I think is very important. It states that this decree for the Father to send the Son as a mediator is all according to the covenant made between them both. You see that wording in the confession. The Father's choice and ordination of his only son to the office of mediator was in accordance with what is known as the covenant of redemption. Uh, The covenant of redemption is an agreement between the Father and the Son before creation. This was an agreement between them uh, to redeem man. This was already established, already decreed. This was already a covenant between the Father and the Son. Now, we discussed the different covenants last week in chapter 7. The covenant of redemption was part of paragraph 3, which, because of time, I wasn't able to fully break down. But here in this chapter, we get to revisit this concept. Uh, The confession is stating that there was a covenant between the Father and the Son. If you remember from last week, the word covenant simply means a pact or an agreement between two parties with stipulations. In this case, you may be asking, well... What was the pact between the Father and the Son? And more importantly, what was its stipulations? It's simple. The pact was that Jesus was to enter flesh as a man. And as a man, he was to live under the weight of the covenant of works. This is another way of saying that he was to live under the law. He was to fulfill the law on behalf of those whom the Father has elected. And at the end... He was to bear the punishment uh, in which the elect deserved. He he was to bear it on himself. In this way, he would be the mediator uh, by taking their sins upon himself and reconciling people to the Father. And he was was to be the substitute for sinners and the firstborn of new creation. And the reward, remember in uh, covenant pacts, right? When you have a covenant, there's... uh, there's stipulations, and there's often a reward. There's often penalty, depending on the covenant faithfulness or lack thereof. The reward in this covenant between the Son and the Father is the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth. And this is why Jesus accomplishes his work. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. We see that towards the end of the accomplishment of his work. This is why he's given the name above all names. You see that in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. There's that reward, that exaltation, if you will, of all that Christ has accomplished. Um, And again, after his redemptive work, we see in Scripture that all authority over heaven and earth was given to Christ. This was a reward for his accomplishments. Now, you you also may be asking, I mean, if you're like me, you'd be asking. Maybe you're not asking. But if you're like me, you'd be asking, what if he didn't fulfill his task? What would have been the stipulation for that? What if Jesus didn't go through with that covenant? He He didn't succeed. Well, God forbid, but just hypothetically. The answer is simple. Either he accomplishes this task and brings about salvation and new creation for many, or the wrath of God remains. Right? The wrath of God is eventually poured down on us. And yet we know that whatsoever God decrees will come to pass. So as difficult of a task as it was for Jesus Christ, it was assured that every element and detail that was essential for accomplishing that task of redemption would absolutely come to pass through the work of Christ. We, we had great confidence in that. Please. Sure. Yeah. Would that encompass also the saints? Absolutely. So, so part of that was redeeming us, and that being part of the reward, and then also us, also the kingdom in which we also share in in His reward. So, yeah, good question. Yeah. Now, 
where do we see, this is the key question, where do we see these concepts in Scripture? Well, let's go to, let's go to the Bible. John 6, uh, 38 through 40. Can, can I have a volunteer to read it? Thank you. So here we see that he was sent. Here we see the language of him losing nothing at all that the Father has given him. And in that last verse, he says, uh, he, he lays out the application of what he was sent to do. Let's look at another passage. Uh, John 17, 4 through 12. Uh, can someone read that? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Thank you. So in this passage, we see from the first verse, uh, Jesus speaking about work that was given to him by the Father. And in verse 10 uh, and 11, we see that Jesus speaks of those whom the Father has given to him and the fact that all that are his also belongs to the Father. Towards the end, we read that those that the Father gives to the Son, not one is lost. So again, uh, here in this passage, Jesus is expressing the covenant terms. Another good passage that I think uh, is also very important is Luke twenty-two, twenty-nine. Jesus' own words. He says here, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. So what is significant about this, about this passage is the verb used here, which is the word, Diatithemi, I guess that's how you pronounce it, diatithemi, which comes from diatheke, which means this, to appoint by covenant. In other words, this verse speaks of the covenantal reward appointed to Christ, which he appointed by his covenant faithfulness. I'm sorry, which he obtained by his covenant faithfulness. He, He received this because he was faithful. And we see this concept of covenant obedience in Christ as well as Christ receiving covenantal rewards throughout Scripture. You see this clearly in Philippians 2, 8 through 10, where it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, all, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So, so when you look at this passage, there's some good questions that you should ask. Number one, to whom or to what was Christ being obedient to? Even to the point of death. And why, being that Jesus was always God, did the Father, only after the accomplishment of the work of redemption that Christ has done, Why did he choose to exalt him and bestow on him the name that is above every name? Didn't he already obtain that? Wasn't he by nature God? Well, according to this covenant relationship, there was a process. There was was humiliation, and then there was a point of exaltation. Uh, You see, I underlined a few phrases here. Um, He humbled himself by becoming obedient. 
He was obedient to covenantal terms, right? God being obedient to God, does that make any sense? No. But God being obedient to God in covenant terms, absolutely it makes sense. To the point of death, even death on the cross, and then uh, verse 9, what was the reward? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Uh, And a lot of times people read these passages and they say, well, there's no way that Jesus is God. And can't you see that he's submissive to the Father? You know, he's submitting and obeying to the Father. He can't be God. Um, He receives rewards. He can't be God. Well, this makes sense only in the context of a covenant. Now, with all that said, let's focus on the specific calling of Christ in this covenant. Christ was to be mediator. So for us to understand this role, we also have to understand it in light of its Old Testament offices, right? For, for sufficient mediation, you have three important key offices that fulfill this task of mediation completely, holistically. Those three offices are the office of prophet, priest, being a priest, and also king. Why those three? Well, you see that in the Old Testament. Uh, the prophets often mediated, right? You think of Moses uh, mediating uh, between Israel and God the Father. I think priests, that role of priest is probably the most obvious. Um, there are uh, priestly uh, ceremonies uh, in which allowed for mediation between sinners and God. And then there's the role of king, which served, as, uh, which served mediatory purposes. You see that in the book of Judges. You see that uh, throughout the Old Testament. And so these, these are offices that Christ himself fulfills in the new covenant as a, as a role of mediator. And how do we know that Christ took on the office of prophet? Well, I think that's the, probably the most obvious one. Uh, he was the word of God. I think, I think that's probably the most simplest one to sort of see in scripture um, that uh, Christ was a prophet. He spoke on behalf of the Father. But how do we know that he was priest? Uh, Well, scripture teaches that. You see this in Hebrews 5, uh, verses 5 through 6. Can I get someone to read that? So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Thank you. Uh, and later on in Hebrews, we read, uh, we read in uh, Hebrews 7, verses 24 to 25, where it says, But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we see uh, Jesus as mediator there, as a priest. And the significance of this is that as our priest, those who are united to Christ by faith have direct access to the throne of God. We are no longer hindered in, in access to our Heavenly Father. And so we, we, we thank God that in Him, uh, Him serving as our priest, we can come boldly before the throne. What about King? Right? Uh, what evidence do we have in Scripture that Christ fulfills the office of king as mediator? Uh, we see this in Psalm 2.6, where he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is a messianic uh, psalm. Actually, all of them, all the psalms are messianic, but some are more evident than others. But uh, again, we see uh, the office of king being fulfilled in Christ. And as, as well, we see in Luke 1, it says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So uh, we see king, Christ being the king of the kingdom. Um, Jesus himself said that he was a king in John 18, 36, where, he said, uh, where it says Jesus answered him, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And so that's just one. There, there are many uh, other passages. Uh, and the implication of his kingship is that we see, is what we see in the confession here, uh, where it says, and to be head and savior of the church, 
the heir of all things, the judge of the world. So a practical way to see his kingship fleshed out is to see how Christ, who is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, is currently ruling over his church through the ministry of word and sacrament and the indwelling Holy Spirit in his people. And in the final day, he'll judge the world as king. And then finally, we see in, the last sen- uh, in that last sentence in paragraph one, that God gave the Son a people to be his offspring. And we see this in Isaiah 53, 10, where it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So you see that he shall see his offspring in Christ's purchase of the elect Christ receives the elect as his own inheritance from the father and in that sense uh, they're his offspring the confession also states that Jesus' seed or offspring is to be redeemed called, justified sanctified and glorified by him and this concept this concept should probably be familiar with us I think we've, we've uh, spoken of, of that idea that we are called, justified, sanctified, and glorified in him. You see this in Romans 8.30 when it says, and those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So first, God will execute his plan to redeem his elect and apply redemption to them in that order that was stated. He'll call them, he'll save them, he'll justify them. He'll put them in that process of sanctification, which means like, if you're a Christian right now, you've already been called and justified. You're being sanctified. And we wait for that day where uh, the full consummation of it will become a reality where we will be glorified. We would have new glorified bodies. We'll experience life in that state of glorification. This is the state that unfortunately Adam wasn't able to attain in the garden. But in Christ, we receive it. Christ fulfilled that role, and now we're glorified in him. And so, again, that's, the, that's sort of the process of salvation. That's how he executes um, what he accomplished. Um, let's go ahead and look at uh, paragraph two. Can someone read paragraph two? The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything he has made. When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature, with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus, he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah descended of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the scriptures. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, one yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. Thank you. Yeah, so this paragraph alone can be a teaching series. Um, It's packed with uh, very essential and important doctrine that I think is foundational to the Christian faith. Everything in there is very important. Uh, There's no way I'd be able to cover that and do justice to it, um, at at least right now. So I'll have to choose only a few points that would uh, help specifically with the topic of mediator. The the first point I can derive from this paragraph is uh, how it expresses the truth about the deity of Christ. Uh, And this is relevant to Christ as mediator, because if Jesus were to be a qualified mediator, which he is, he would have to meet all the requirements of a holy God before he can be be an acceptable sacrifice. And we see that concept from John 8 and also Hebrews 9, um, where it talks about Christ being the sufficient sacrifice. Um, and so if, if, if the person that was going to mediate 
and reconcile our relationship with God was to come and pay for our sins, it, would re it really would have to be God. <laughs> um, he he, think about this. He had to fulfill over 300 prophecies about the Messiah that God, through the prophets, had foretold. And also, since the fall of man, the only way to be made right with God has been the blood of innocent sacrifices. Jesus was the final perfect sacrifice that satisfied forever God's wrath against sin. His divine nature made him fit for that work. I think about it. If one person sins against God, he deserves an eternity of punishment. You know, not so much weighing it based on the sin itself, but weighing it on whom the sin was done against, right? It's one thing that you sin against me, you know, doesn't, probably doesn't mean anything if you sin against me. But if you sinned against the president, you'd probably be put in jail. You see, you see the, the, the issue there that if you, if you do a crime against me, you know, it, it's, it's not that weighty. If you were to do a crime against uh, the president, there are bigger consequences. Nevertheless, uh, that's a bad example when you compare it to God. God's majesty and authority um, and his highness, uh, the fact that he's, he is creator, uh, sinning against God is, is a really, really big deal. Um, and it also speaks on the... Uh, the depravity of man. There has there has to be deep corruption to go against the the one who sustains you, the one who um, allows you to live, even though you sin against him. He is he all he, he's merciful and gracious. And so it's a big it's a big debt. All that to say, no human being with a sin nature could pay such a debt. You can't just hire some guy to be the mediator. It has to be God. He has to be God. No one else could meet the requirements to become the sacrifice for the sins of the whole number of the elect. So I'm just talking about one of you guys. Imagine the whole number of the elect. If Now, let's put it this way. If Jesus were just merely a good man, as some claim, then he had a sin nature and was not perfect. And already you see the, you see the problem there in, in him being unqualified. Uh, in that case, his death and resurrection would have no power to save anyone. But because Jesus was God in the flesh, he alone could pay the debt that we owe to God. His victory over death and the grave won the victory for everyone who puts their trust in him. You see this in John 1.12. Again, consider the fact that man's sin, which deserves an eternity of punishment, was satisfied in a matter of a few hours as Christ himself bore it all, and might I add, bore every painful second of it upon himself. This is only possible if Christ is God. However, this doesn't imply that his divine nature underwent any, any sufferings. We've already spoken about that uh, in the class on the Trinity. Um, it would be impossible uh, for God to suffer, to, to the deity to undergo any kind of um, suffering, being that God is immutable and he's impassable. But again, going back to Christ's divine nature, uh, here, let's look at some passages. Romans 9, 5. Can someone read that? To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh, as the Christ is God of all blessed Thank you. So here we see, to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to, the according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Another passage, Hebrews 1.8. Can I get someone to read that? But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the center of your kingdom. Thank you. So again, you see the same thing. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. And, and there, are, there are many passages in Scripture that speak on the deity of Christ. But again, for the sake of time, we, we kind of got to move on. Uh, a second point that we can derive from paragraph two um, is the importance of the hypostatic union. 
you, the hypostatic union is uh, the, the fact that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is, is both God but also man. And they are united uh, in such a way that qualifies him to be the perfect mediator. Uh, so this is called the hypostatic union. We read in the confession that it says, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. Uh, this person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. So this is an important statement in understanding the God-man because it stresses the fact that the two natures were inseparably joined together without converting one into, into the other or uh, mixing them together. So Jesus wasn't, wasn't a demigod, right? He, wasn't, he was 100% God and 100% man. This is to say that if the work of redemption was to succeed, Jesus had to be 100% uh, man. No cheating, right? You have to be 100% man. While maintaining the pure nature of deity as well. He wasn't like a chocolate Nestle Quick, right? Where you, you have milk and then you put chocolate and it becomes something else. Chocolate milk. It wasn't a mixture of deity and man. Uh, there were no mixtures between the two natures. However, they, you, they were united in such a way that they were one. The moment that any of his deity mixes with his humanity, he was no longer purely human. And if any of his human nature mixed with his divine nature, he would be less than divine and no God at all. And you'll see in Scripture that both natures are highlighted in the New Testament when, when speaking about Jesus. For example, look what Paul wrote in Romans 1, 3. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. So he's, he's talking about Jesus, and already he's making distinctions in nature. Right? He's saying, regarding him, his human nature, you see he's pointing it out, goes to show the proof of the hypostatic union. Got a question? The ESV just says according to the flesh. So like, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, same exact, same exact concept. According to the flesh. In other words, he's making some <coughs> distinction between deity and flesh. Uh, he's not talking about uh, according to the flesh. Like, oftentimes, we're, the way that we would often use it, referring to sin, that he's, he's just simply specifically talking about human nature versus uh, his divine nature. I'll, I'll give you more examples just to kind of develop that. First Peter 3, 18, it says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body. That's probably a little bit more clear. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So there's distinction there. Also, look at what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews uh, 1, 2 to 3. But in, the, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he had appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of, the glory, of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So again, we looked at passages that spoke on his uh, human nature. Here we get a clear uh, description of Christ and his uh, divine nature, how uh, the Son is a radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. Exact representation of his being, this includes immutability. This includes omnipresence. <laughs> Right? This includes uh, omniscience, right? He was all-knowing. All that is included there. So once Jesus became a human being, his human nature was never separated from the divine nature. Jesus was one person with two natures. 
He did not cease being God when he became human, and neither was he any less human because he was God. In one body, he was God and humanity united. It's a mystery, often, um, but this is what the hypostatic union is all about. Okay, let's uh, move on to paragraph three. Yes. Yeah, the wording is great on that. Combination Yeah. And take this one step further in thinking, they are inseparable, which means that today there's not there's not a a disembodied word in some ethereal space. Yeah. Like God's right hand. Yeah. Which is popular in belief. Sadly. Yeah. There is Jesus Christ. Man and God, mm-hmm. human and God, mm-hmm. sitting at the right hand yes. of the Father. Yeah, and that's good news to us because it uh, it allows it allows us to see the continual uh, mediation, uh, the continual work of Christ as priest there at the right hand of the Father. Um, so yeah, that's 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 very important. Yeah, excellent. Let's look at a paragraph. Oh, you had a question. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. now he has the human Yeah, inseparably. Yeah. Like, but there wasn't any change in his godness. Right. Yeah. Now, the moment that we talk about, yeah, the moment that we get into uh, any changes in his divine nature, that's where we get into heresy. But it's true, it's hard to. So he will always have that human nature. Forever and ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Example instead of the Hershey's quick chocolate, strawberry. Yeah, uh, yeah. For those of you who prefer strawberry, (laughs) yes. Same thing. Yeah, that's right. Same concept. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yes, yes. All right. uh, Let's look at uh, paragraph three. Uh, Someone want to read that for me? But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And oh, sorry. Uh, paragraph three from the confession. I missed that part. <laughs> it's okay. My bad. It was probably my fault. Yeah. Thanks for reading, though. Yeah, it's a good, yeah. I got you. All right, let's try this again. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, united in this way to the divine and the person of the son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. He had in himself all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Father was pleased to make all fullness dwell in him, so that, being wholly harmless and undefiled and full of grace and truth, he was thoroughly qualified to carry out the office of mediator and guarantor. He did not take the office upon himself, but was called to it by his Father, who put all power and judgment in his hand and commanded him to carry them out. Thank you. So, in this paragraph, it begins by stating, the Lord Jesus, in his human nature, united in this way to the divine, in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. That's a big big deal there. Uh, The sentence, that sentence alone is very profound. It tells us that the human nature of Christ, united to the divine, in the one person, brought about an exaltation of the human nature to some degree. A.A. Uh, a. Hodge, he, he has a commentary on the Westminster Confession, and he speaks about this, uh, that sentence, um, and this is what he says. Uh, he states that this union was uh, to exalt the human nature of Christ to a degree of dignity and honor greatly beyond that attained by any other creature, and to fill it with a perfection of intellectual and moral excellence beyond that attained by any other creature. Now, I found that to be quite interesting. Christ was without sin, nor living with the effects of sin that we know from experience distorts us, right? Such as the, effect, the mental effects that sin has to us. I mean, we, we experience that. Um, all the noetic effects of the fall. And, and other weaknesses... Uh, of the flesh that are a result of the fall. Christ did not have any of that, right? 
Now, it's important to mention that the exaltation of Christ's human nature in no way extends the human nature beyond the essential properties, right? His human nature was still hungry. He was still thirsty. He was still weary. Um, The reason the exaltation occurs is because it is united to the divine nature in the person of the Son. Uh, The emphasis being on the uniting of the natures in the person of the Son, not in the uniting of the human nature to the divine nature. It's simply saying that, uh, number one, Christ being sinless uh, had an effect on, on who he was. Uh, the fact that his flesh was, was united to the divine nature had some sort of effect uh, to his, to, to his uh, performing. Um, so again, all that to say is that he, he was sinless. He was, uh, as the confession states, he was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. Again, the confession states that the Lord Jesus, in his human nature, united to the divine, in the person of the Son, was sanctified. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And the confession states that the human nature of Christ was sanctified or set apart. That's that's what that means, by the Holy Spirit. It was anointed. The word anointed reminds us of the word Messiah, which means the anointed one. And when a king was anointed with oil, it symbolized the empowerment to carry out that office. And this anointing, was beyond measure. In other words, it was beyond the ability to measure. Or simply put, it was more than enough to equip Christ's human nature to carry out the task. Now, you can look at that and say, oh, so in other words, he was empowered to carry out the task. Big deal. Well, if you examine what kind of task he had to accomplish and the sufferings that he had to endure, um, I mean, this is an important element the fact that he was qualified in such a way to, to carry out this task should amaze us. First of all, what does the scripture say about him being anointed? We see in Psalm 45, 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. See that same kind of language. Uh, John three thirty four. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. So again, that's the language used there in the confession. And if you think about it, the divine nature certainly did not need to be anointed by the Spirit. So by this we understand that it was his human nature anointed by the Holy Spirit, being united to the divine nature in in the person of the Son. Uh, This setting apart and empowerment by the spirit of Christ's human nature explains the ability of his human nature to endure, like I said, all those afflictions that he endured in his body. Uh, Hebrews 5, 7 tells us, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. He was so afflicted that angels from heaven came and strengthened him. Luke 22, 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthened him. And this is is the mediatory work of Christ on our behalf. So we we have to be thankful for that. Moving along quickly, the paragraph tells us that the Son was anointed beyond measure having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell. Again, he, he was, he, he, all, in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge um, dwelt in him. Uh, Colossians 2.3 says, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So all wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. And they come from Christ. This is to say that when we read the Psalms, for example, or we read the, we read the wisdom literatures such as Proverbs, we should never take it merely as a good biblical counsel for life. You read the Proverbs, you say, oh, okay, this is good. I got to, you know, this is wisdom and I'm going to take that as wisdom. Definitely, we should see it that way, of course. We take the wisdom from Proverbs and apply it to our life. But we must... We, we must read them as hints of the character of Christ himself 
right? When we read the wisdom literature, we are getting to know the character of Christ himself. Reading the wisdom literature should also be intimate since it is uh, exposure to the one whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in. And so, of course, we read Proverbs and we take the wisdom from it. We apply it. But we take the wisdom from it with the motivation that we want to be like our Savior. When it comes to meditation and meditating on Christ, reading the wisdom literature, uh, it's important to read it plainly, but also see that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of what we read in Proverbs and what we read in, in all the other wisdom literature. Um, and so, again, uh, hopefully that will lead us to uh, deep meditation on that. Uh, much to say. I'm running out of time here. Uh, the confession continues by saying, to the end, that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might thoroughly furnish, uh, furnish to execute the office of mediator and surety. These exalted qualities of the human nature of Christ are to the end or to the purpose that he might be, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator uh, and surety. Christ was endowed with sufficient power to execute the offices as mediator. And again, this paragraph ends by stating that he did not take this office upon himself, but was called by the Father to fulfill this role. Uh, it was the Father who put all power and judgment in his hand and commanded him to carry that out, that work out. Uh, again, this is simply to say that it was God the Father who sent the Son. And think about it, God the Father being the party that was offended, right? He was, he, we offended the Father by our sin, and yet he loved us so much that in that covenant of redemption, he made it possible for us to find, to have redemption, to be saved, to be united with him. Um, and this is all done through that covenant of redemption. The son also laid his life down. He did it willingly. Uh, and so you see no conflict between the wills of the father and wills of the son. This is something that they planned before the foundation of the world. And so again, with that said, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's continue to meditate not only on the work of Christ, but the uniqueness of, of Jesus Christ as the one and only person who is qualified to fulfill that task. The religions and the cults out there that tell us that Jesus was merely a man, or Jesus was, uh, you know, he wasn't God. They don't properly understand the necessity of all these elements. Um, so we thank God that in Christ, um, we can trust that he is the perfect uh, sacrifice and mediator between God and man. So let's meditate on his, his character, his qualities, his, his qualifications. Amen? Uh, let's pray. Father, we praise you for establishing this covenant of redemption with your son. Uh, this is the foundation of, of the grace covenant that we have in Christ. And may we never get, out, get over the mediatory work of Christ. And, and most importantly, the uniqueness of Christ as the only possible mediator between God and man. And may we preach and proclaim him as such. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, next week uh, we'll carry on from uh, paragraph four until the end. Pastor Ron will be teaching that. Thank you.